Mike. Thank you to our praise team. Um, well, we are continuing in a series today on the topic of potential. And uh, today our text comes from 1 Samuel chapter 29. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip over there uh, and be preparing yourself to walk through 1 Samuel chapter 29. I just want to bring to your attention that this evening our church is having a special time of prayer from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock. The sanctuary will be open. The lights will be dim. It's a drop-in. You don't have to be here at 6 o'clock. If you want to show up later in the 7 o'clock hour, that is totally fine, just when it's convenient to you. But we invite all of our church family to come out, be praying for our church, be praying for things that are going on in your own lives that are prayer needs that you have. And we just want to bring those before the Lord during this two-hour window this evening. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, you may hear some people crying, and probably me, <laughs> right, <clears throat> in the sanctuary. I'll be here um, if you'd like to talk with me, if you'd like for me to pray with you. We'll also have the communion elements here again this evening for you to partake of those. We'll also have anointing oil here this evening if you'd like to be prayed over by our, el by our elders. We're prepared to do that as well. So we hope that you'll come out this evening from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock uh, to join us at some point in that window to pray. Um, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 29, we'll be reading verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. Here we go. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the Lord of the Philistines was passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us into battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? You may be seated. Let me give you just a little bit of background as to what's happening here in this particular passage. Uh, David has made his way into Philistine territory. We'll talk about that more here in just a little bit. And he's, uh, he's living amongst the Philistines' people. He's become one of their soldiers in their army. And so now they're off to war against the Israelites. The commanders are not so sure about that. So let's walk through these verses together and kind of get into the details. It begins at verse 1. The Philistines gathered all their forces at Aphek, and Israel camped by the spring in Jezreel. So here's a map that shows where these two armies were we're at. They're many, many miles apart, but these are kind of like staging areas. Israel's up there in the north. They're headed toward mm, Jezreel and Mount Gilboa, which is where they're going to make their final stand. We saw a couple of weeks ago where Saul gets shot through with arrows, and then he ends up jumping on his own swords. That's how that story wraps up. But in the prelude to that battle at Mount Gilboa, this is where these two armies, the Philistines in the south at Aphek, and then uh, the Israelite army up toward Jezreel. And so then they're going to clash from there. So these are staging areas. Uh, look at verse 2. As the Philistine rulers marched with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were marching at the rear with Achish. Now remember, Achish is the king of the Philistine people. You say, Gordon, hold on, time out. There's something's wrong here. Why is David an Israelite fighting alongside 
the Philistines. What's going on here? Is there some kind of error in the Bible that maybe I don't know about? Is, did, did, did the biblical writers miss something? I thought David was loyal to the Israelite. What's he doing fighting alongside the Philistines? And not only that, David had been a warrior against the Philistines. If you read all through 1 Samuel, you learn that David killed thousands of Philistines to pay a bride price to the king Saul. He brought 100, the, the results of 100 guys, Philistines, that he had killed to King Saul. And David has developed this tremendous reputation for killing Philistines, chief among them being the really tall guy named Goliath. You say, how in the world is David in this army with the Philistines? Well, flip back over to 1 Samuel chapter 27 with me. Just flip back to 1 Samuel 27, verse 1. It says, But David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing that I can do to escape to the land, is to escape to the land of the Philistines. So back after when David was being pursued by King Saul, he was living in caves, he got tired of living in caves, God had given David specific instructions. Look, I want you to go into the land of Judah, I want you to go into south Israel, and that's where I want you to remain, David, until the time is right for you to ascend and take the throne of the nation of Israel. David wasn't, kind of got tired of living in caves. So David decides, hey, look, I've got, I've got a mind, I've got a good mind, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just do, the, do something different. And so David takes his 600 soldiers that he has with him, and he goes into the land of the Philistines, and he begins to live in the Philistine territory. And so he, you know, God has given him specific instructions. He doesn't want to do that. Um, and then look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 27 and verse 4. It says that when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, that's in Philistine territory, the home of Goliath, by the way, that Saul no longer searched for David. So David found safety for himself in the Philistine territory. Saul's like, well, if he ain't here in my hometown, if he's not here in our nation, then I'm not worried about him anymore. He's no longer a threat to me. And so Saul just kind of let things die out. So that was David's wisdom. And David, you know, things kind of worked out for him. It looked like it was actually a good decision that David made, even though it was not the decision that God had explicitly given David to do. You say, Gordon, none of this really makes sense, though. Why would the Philistines welcome an Israelite warrior champion into their midst? He's killed thousands of us. Why would we want him in the Philistine army, right? That doesn't make any sense. Well, think about it for a second. King Achish, the king of the Philistine people, he must have been a very pragmatic guy. He saw a chance to get Chipper Jones on his team. And so he's like, hey, look, he's guys an all-star. I don't care that he was an Israelite at one time. I don't care that he was against us at one time, playing against the Mets. Hey, we're welcome to have him now. He's going to hit home runs for us, right? He's going to put his, his, his hitting ability on our team. And so that's the kind of the way King Achish must have seen it, even though, again, God had explicitly told David, don't go to the Philistine territory. Don't do this. It works out for David. At least it appears to work out. Um, for a little while. Um, so David and his men are now, go back to 1 Samuel chapter 29, are now marching down the road on their way to go fight who? The Israelites, right? They're on their way to go fight the Israelites. You say, that's a real problem, right? Okay, so, so, the, so he gets safety from the Israelites in Philistine territory. So King Achish welcomes him in and says, hey, look, we'd like to have an all-star on our team. That's fine if you're going to go fight Egyptians, that's fine if you're going to go fight Moabites or Edomites, but now you're having to go fight your own people, right? Now you're having to put on a New York Mets jersey in the World Series. Well, this wouldn't really happen, but against the Atlanta Braves, right? 
Y'all get that that wouldn't really happen. Okay, interleague play. That's the only way. Anyway, so um, now it's not even interleague play. Uh, I haven't watched a baseball game in a little while. So, um, but anyhow, so, so there's a real problem here that David's got. He's marching down this road because he said, hey, look, the price for me to be able to have safety in the Philistine land is I'm going to go to war with the Philistines. I'm going to fight for you, King Achish. And yet he finds himself in this real pickle that now the battle is not against some other foreign territory, but it's against his own people. And so he's marching down the road with his 600 soldiers, and he's in a real bind. And think about it now. What's David going to do? I mean, if he tucks tail and runs, if he says to his 600 soldiers, guys, let's get out of here. We can't do this. We can't go to war against our own people. Well, Achish has got thousands of Philistine soldiers, and immediately he's going to know that David is, uh, is disloyal. He's going to immediately know that everything these commanders were worried about is going to happen. And so he's going to take David out. He's going to run them down with his thousands of soldiers. He's going to overwhelm David with his 600 soldiers. And then he's going to go back to David's hometown where all the wives and the children are living. And he's going to decimate them as well. And so David's in a real spot here. His other option is go fight against the Israelites. Throw the spears. Draw the sword. Let their blood flow. David can't do that either. So see where David's wisdom got him? David made a decision that looked on paper like something that was workable. It got him out of the cave. It got his family into a town. And they had a little territory where he, kind of a little Israelite spot in the midst of this Philistine land. Things were looking pretty good. But then God knew something like this might happen. So what, what, what's David to do? Well, look at verse, uh, let's look at verse 4, 1 Samuel chapter 29 and verse 4, skipping ahead. The commanders of the Philistines come to King Achish of the Philistines and say, send him back. Are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? Bring this guy into battle with us against his own people. You know what he's going to end up doing. He must not go with us or he'll turn against us during the fighting. In other words, he's going to go in there and, and, and he's going to flank us right in the middle of the battle. He's going to start shooting arrows into our back right in the middle of the battle. He's going to smack us over the back of the head right in the middle of the battle. And when this is going on, I'm not, you know, all of a sudden we're going to get hit from two sides. Don't bring David and his men into this battle. Achish, are you out of your mind? So Achish calls David, verse 6. He calls David in. And it's amazing in the text that this, all this kind of happens this way, but King Achish is feeling pretty bad about having to bring this news to David, who I'm sure on the inside is going, man, this is working out great, right? Um, and so he says to him, Achish, he called David in. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, you've been terrific. You've been reliable. You've been a trustworthy soldier in my army. You've been the all-star we hoped you'd be. And I would be pleased to have you serve with me now in this battle we're getting ready to go into. From the day you came to me until this moment, you, I have found no fault, no disloyalty in you, whatever. But I got these generals, and they just, they're not going to go into battle with you, with us. So, verse 7, last verse, turn back and go in peace. David gets an apology from King Achish for having to send David away from this battle. David's cover is not blown. Friends, would you say that God bailed David out of a difficult situation? 
Absolutely, he did. David got him into this, got himself into this because he was following his own wisdom. God told him what to do. David did something else. And David ended in this lose-lose situation. But God bailed him out of it. And thank God for that. All right, well, that's the end of our story today, which means it's time for us to ask our most important question. It's a question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, that's great that David got bailed out of that situation. Uh, he was in a pretty, pretty big pickle there, a lose-lose situation. Um, it's good that God bailed him out. But, I mean, outside of the history lesson, what difference does any of this make to me? Right? What does this have to do with my life? How does this help me where I'm living? What difference does this make to me? Well, that's a really great question. Let's see if we can answer that. You know, David really blew it by going into the Philistine territory. God had told him one thing to do. David did something different. It looked like it was a good decision on paper. It looked like it was a good decision at first. It says in the scriptures that David lived in the Philistine territory for 14 months, right? So for a year and four months, David lived there, and things looked like they were pretty good until this scenario popped up, which God knew would pop up. And then he ended up having to come in and sort things out. You know, my life's not a whole lot different than that. There are plenty of things, plenty, that I have said that I wish I could take back. There are plenty of things that I have done that, oh, right? We've all had moments like that. We've all had decisions like that where perhaps God had said, why didn't you just ask me, right? Or I've, I told you what to do, and we went our own wisdom anyway. Um, and our lives just become full of that sort of thing. Um, perhaps it was how we treated somebody. Perhaps it was how we behaved at work. Perhaps it was a dumb comment. Um, I'm going to have a confession here to you this morning. Y'all good with confessions? Right, you say, mm, that was good. Go ahead, give us one. Um, when Claire and I first got married, we were newlyweds, I had had a buddy of mine who had told me about penny stocks. Anybody ever heard about penny stocks before? So I took some of our wedding money and invested it in the surefire penny stocks, right? You're like, well, I can't believe you did that. Yeah, I did. I know, it's terrible. Uh, one of those moments, right? And I watched over the next two years, because I was, I mean, we were going to make millions, right? No, whatever. It was, we're going we're gonna to double fold our money. It was a sure thing. And uh, a month after that, Claire took the checkbook from me <laughs> and began taking care of our finances when she's done a great job since. Um, and I watched over the next two years as my penny stocks became worth less than pennies. Um, stupid things. Ridiculous, stupid, dumb stuff, right? Stuff we wish we could get back. But here's the thing about being a Christian. When we make mistakes, and we will, we do, Lord knows we will. Perfection left the earth 2,000 years ago. We'll make mistakes. Like David, though, we have a merciful God. A merciful God who's watching over us. Psalm chapter 103 and verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Verse 9, he says, He will not always accuse. Even though we've done wrong, God's not just going to keep standing over us, pointing the finger, kicking us, judging us, reminding us of our guilt. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Remember, this is David writing this. He does not always treat us 
as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. We serve a merciful God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, God saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. See, mercy is innate to the personhood of God. Yes, God is righteous and he is holy, but God is also forgiving and he is merciful. Isn't it wonderful to know that he does not always, in his righteousness, accuse, but that sometimes, when the time is right, he gives us his mercy. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, when a defendant goes into the courtroom and the verdict comes and guilty is the sentence or is the verdict, the defendant has an opportunity to throw themselves upon the mercy of the court. And they're pleading to the judge for mercy. I don't deserve it. It's been established that I'm guilty. But I'm asking you now for your mercy. Friends, essentially, this is what God's mercy is. It is a rescuing of David out of a lose-lose situation. You say, well, Gordon, that sounds really great. I'm glad that God's a merciful God. I'm glad that God did this for David. But how do I get him to do it for me? How do I get the mercy of God to be activated in my own life? How do I get God to show me what I desperately need? His mercy. I want to spend the balance of my time giving you three ways that we can activate the mercy of God in our life. Number one, if you want to activate the mercy of God in your life, then be merciful. Jesus said in his famous sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, he's uttering off the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus says, if you want God to show you mercy, make sure that you show mercy to others yourself. Jesus tells the parable of the unmerciful servant, this guy who went into his master, and he, owned, he owed his master, literally in the story, millions of dollars. He didn't have it. Didn't have anywhere close to it. And he begged his master for mercy. He was getting ready to be thrown in jail. All of his family was getting ready to be thrown in jail. And he begged his master for mercy. And his master showed him mercy. He forgave a millions of dollars debt. And then that guy, that servant, walked out of that place. And on his way home, he ran across a guy who owed him literally just a few dollars, just a couple of bucks. And he grabs a hold of the guy. He says, give me my money. And the guy said, I don't have that money. And he beats on him. And he calls in the authorities. And they haul him off to jail. His master finds out about this. He goes back to the servant. He calls him in. And he lowers the boom on his servant who owed him the millions of dollars. Because he refused to show mercy in another situation. Blessed are merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Friends, in God's economy, mercy is a two-way street. God's mercy will never flow down to you from heaven if at first you do not show it to your fellow man. That may mean treating your brother or your sister with understanding and patience. 
It may mean helping somebody out on, the other, out on the side of the road. It may mean taking out one of the guys from work who's going through a tough time in his marriage or who's going through a tough time with one of his children and listening, leaving the, advices, the advice for some other time. Just listening. Those are acts of mercy. When we show mercy like that, it activates the mercy of God. Number two, if you want to activate the mercy of God in your life, number two, you've got to come clean and admit sin. You have to come clean and admit sin. Friends, as long as your approach to sin is damage control and cover up, that will not bring the mercy of God. The Bible says, James chapter 5, verse 16, we read part of this last week. The first part of the verse says, confess your sins to each other. It doesn't say to go get in a prayer closet and confess your sins to God. We do that as well. But the scriptures, and talking specifically in this passage about physical healing, that if physical healing is what you're after, then you need to confess your, couldn't be more clear in the scriptures, confess your sins to one another. You say, Gordon, I would be terribly embarrassed. Perhaps. Perhaps that's a good thing. Because confession and knowing that we're going to have to confess is a positive, motivating force in our lives, friends. So the Bible says, confess your sins one to another so that, and pray for one another, so that you may be healed. What do we want? We want the last part of that verse. God, give me the healing without the embarrassing conversation. God, give me the healing without having to unveil what's really been going on in my life. We want God's blessing. We want his mercy. We want his healing. But God says there's a prescription. If you want to get the four, you got to add two and two. You got to do it according to God's formula. I have a buddy from seminary that we um, are in regular contact with. I'm in regular contact with. Um, he lives up in Tennessee. He's a pastor and uh, every Thursday, he gets a text message from me. And it's me checking in. Hey, this is what's going on in my life. These are the things that are happening around the church. Uh, this is some of the things that God's been doing. Uh, but it's also an opportunity for me to confess, to say, hey, man, I messed up in this area of my life. And friends, there's times when I don't want to send that text message out. Right? I don't want to admit it to anybody. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You, just you and me, right? But the Lord said you need to confess that to one another. And so I do, because I want the mercy of God activated in my life. You know, anybody here ever grown up in the Catholic Church? Anybody been around Catholic Church? That's right, we've got a few, that's right. And you know, in Catholic Church, part of what you do is you go into the confessional booth, right? And you sit in there with the priest, and there's a little wall behind you, and he raises the little curtain things, and then you tell jokes back and forth to one another, right? Somebody got a good one? I don't have a good one for you this morning, but anyway, um, you know, politician walked into a confessional booth. I, I don't know, whatever it was. So, um, but you go in there, and you confess your sins to the priest, which is this scripture in motion, it's confessing those sins one to another. We confess them to the Lord, and we ask for his forgiveness. He's the one who gives it. The priest doesn't give us the forgiveness. God gives us the forgiveness. Your friend's not going to give you forgiveness. 
They're not the ones who are going to wash your heart clean. The Lord's going to do that. But the Lord instructed us to be in community. And this brings accountability. And he understood the power of that. If you want to activate the mercy of God in your life, friends, confess your sins to one another. And guys, one word of advice to you, your wife is not the person to confess your sins to. (laughs) I have known so many people over the course of my ministry that have made that mistake. Um, It is not the place for you to confess your sins to your wife. Um, She didn't need to hear that. That's what I'm here for. You say, but Gordon, I know you. Yes, you do. And believe me, there is nothing that you cannot tell me that I have not heard 10 times worse. You say, but Gordon, you just don't know. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, after 18 years of ministry, I have heard just about it all. You come to me, I will show you great grace. I will show you God's mercy. I will show you God's unconditional acceptance and love. But friends, we need to honor the scriptures. Or you find somebody of yours or some friend of yours, somebody that you can say, I got, the scriptures are telling me if I want the mercy of God, that if I want God's healing, this is a prerequisite for that. Number three, and finally, if you want to activate the mercy of God in your life, you need to show mercy to others. Number two, you need to confess your sins, not just to God, but also to one another. And number three, you need to show God that you're serious. You need to show God that you're serious. Um, I had a basketball coach in high school, and we had this drill that he'd make us do called three-point stance drill. Anybody ever play basketball? Remember three-point stance, right? Get down there, hands up, palms up. And you like kind of go sideways back and forth along the court. And that's how you play defense. So the guy's dribbling the ball in front of you. You get down in front of him and you can shuffle one side to the other. And you can reach your hands in there and knock the ball out. And so this is how we were taught to play defense in basketball. Well, he had a particular drill, the three-point stance drill, where he would send us around the court. And we'd have to go all the way around the outside of the basketball court, down deep. I mean, down deep. You had to have your rear end and your leg parallel to the ground. He wanted to see us down deep into this, into this stance. And so we would be, have to go all the way around the basketball court. And then we got done with going all the way around the basketball court. We had to go on each interior line of the basketball court. And then when we got done going through each interior line, all of the three-point lines, all of the foul lines, all of the middle of the court lines, after we got done doing all that, he'd say, okay, do it again. And we didn't know when it was going to stop. Well, what's he looking for? He's looking for the guys that get a little tired, And they don't want to just keep the deep stance. And they start to cheat up a little bit. And they relieve their legs a little bit of the pressure. He's looking for the guys who just have to sit down. He's looking for the guys who just are like, I'm just too tired. He's looking to identify the ones who really want it. It's what he's doing. He wants to find the ones who are hungering for this. Who desire to be a starting player on the team. Who really wants to play. Friends, God's just the same. Again, we want God's mercy. We want God's healing. We want God's blessing. But we're not so sure about getting deep in the three-point stance and going until the coach says, okay, it's time. 
And so we need to show God that we're serious about that. We can show God that we're serious about all of this by committing ourselves to daily prayer. Friends, I don't know where you are in your prayer life right now, if it's barely got a heartbeat or if it's like loving being on your knees before Jesus every day. But one of the things that we need to do as a church is to make sure that that time on our knees is happening. Make sure that that time in quiet reflection before the Lord, because not only is God transforming us through it, but it's us saying to God, God, I'm serious about this. And so God invites us to this discipline of daily prayer. Another thing that we can do is through a season of fasting. Fasting can be fasting from food. It can be fasting from certain kinds of food. Um, I once at one time did a 40-day fast of meat. Didn't eat meat for 40 days. Boy, and, and it was interesting because at the end of that thing, I found myself down in Savannah with a whole bunch of our board members at Love's Crab Shack. And they're all just going to town on fried shrimp and on crab legs. And I'm just, and I'm 39 days into a 40-day no-meat fast, having to watch these bunch of yahoos. But in any case, uh, what is that doing? It's telling God, I'm serious. It may be saying, no more Facebook for the rest of this month. It may be saying, I'm going to put my cell phone down for a while. It may be saying, I'm not going to get on the internet. It may be saying, God, I'm not going to turn on the TV shows on Mondays, or whatever it might be, but my favorite shows are on Monday. We've got Monday Night Football right ready to start. Showing God that we're serious through a season of fasting. It doesn't have to last forever, but it's a season in our life. The question for you and I is, how bad? Do we want God's mercy? You know, David's marching down the road. <sighs> I'm in a lose-lose situation. I can turn and run. It's going to hurt a lot of people. I can go into battle. It's going to hurt a lot of people. God, I need your mercy. How do we activate the mercy of God in our life? Number one, if you want to achieve, activate the mercy of God in your life, you need to show mercy to others. Number two, you need to confess your sins, not just to God, but also to one another. And number three, you need to show God that you're serious. Now, I said over the course of this series that I was going to ask and answer the one last question for us, and that was what difference does all this make to us as a church, right? What difference does this make for your family, for my family, when we come together as the body of Christ? Well, I see tonight as an opportunity for deliverance. I think that there are some of us in our midst that have been serious for a while and have been asking God for his mercy for a season. And we've been confessing sin and we've been merciful. God's changed our heart through this experience and we've become merciful to others. And as we've done these things tonight, my prayer over the course of all this past week, and really started back in June, has been that God would show mercy to some of our members tonight. I think for other, others of us, tonight will be a beginning. I think it's going to be an opportunity for us to shake off the old crusty faith that we've just kind of been living with. To, 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 to come out of this staleness that we've had in our prayer life and to reignite that and to say, God, I'm serious 
I want to see your hand at work at Hebron. I want to see the water getting used. Right? I want to see people coming to Christ. I want to see all these new people who are building houses out here around us. Find a church family where the truth is spoken week over week. So I see tonight as an opportunity for deliverance for some of us. I see tonight as an opportunity to begin again fresh and new, a season of God's work in and through our church. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, make us hungry. Make us thirsty. Inaugurate this evening a great awakening in this body of Christ. Inaugurate this evening a movement of God that the world cannot deny. Set us on fire, Lord. Set us on fire. Lord, we thank you for seasons like this in our own lives, in our church family, where, Lord, you want to take us to higher heights, to places of potential that we didn't even know we had. But they're there. And you saw it. And you're calling us to it. Or may we listen for your voice. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.